This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. We are continuing to try and maintain a festive holiday mood, but we do anticipate some difficulties in this particular area. In our second segment today, we're going to talk at length about the legacy of Nelson Mandela. And I think the way we need to do that is like they're doing in South Africa. Make it a celebration of his life as opposed to a mourning of his passing. In a world that's uh, increasingly starved for heroes, we would note that in spite of all the hype about his passing, he really does qualify. Nelson Mandela was a remarkable figure who changed history, and I think we're going to try and pay tribute to that at some length in our second segment and and really try and make it a celebration of what he accomplished. And he accomplished a great deal. I think he's a somewhat more complicated figure than a lot of Tory obituaries might have you believe, but, but, but still, when it's all said and done, he stands as a figure that must be regarded as heroic. Now, some years back, when we first started doing this program, we tried to get Nelson Mandela to come on and talk about South Africa. We also tried to get F.W. de Klerk. Man's reach should exceed his grasp, but I think that if we tried a few years earlier, unfortunately we did not have a radio program, we might have succeeded with Mr. Mandela. I think we probably still could succeed with F.W. de Klerk. And you know what? We just might try come 2014. The two men shared the Nobel Peace Prize for their efforts in South Africa, and, and frankly, they both deserved it unlike some other countries' presidents we might mention. Both those men actually did something to deserve the award. But uh, we may be joined by some of our friends to talk about Mandela, and we may not. Either way, we will try and do his life justice. But let us begin today's program, as we like to do every week, with, on this date in history, our date today is the 12th of December. It was on December 12th in 1770, that seven British soldiers were acquitted, but two were found guilty of manslaughter during the Boston Massacre in Massachusetts. That's when jumpy British soldiers fired into a rioting crowd, killing five. The two convicted men were punished and discharged from the army. Defending the soldiers? The future second president of the United States, John Adams. On December 12th in 1800, the capital of the United States got moved from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, to its current location in Washington, D.C. And here's one you just have to like. On December 12th in 1899, the wooden golf tee was patented by George F. Bryant of Boston, Massachusetts. On December 12th in 1963, Kenya became an independent state within the British Commonwealth. Jomo Kenyatta served as its first prime minister. On that same day, it became a republic. And it also made Kenyatta its president. And by the way, all of those of you who swear that Barack Obama was born in the Republic of Kenya back in 1962, be advised per this item, there was no such place. Our quote of the day comes from Benjamin Franklin, who once said, when you're done changing, you're done. Our quip of the day comes from Don Henley. <laughs> I do have to like this one. Said the uh, former Eagles drummer, Sometimes you get the best light from a burning bridge. 
And you know, I do try to go through life not burning bridges, but boy, I sure torched one last week. And uh, no, I'm not going to share the details. Our joke of the day comes from the writers for Craig Ferguson, who said this week, North Korea should make this their new tourist slogan. North Korea, come for the corruption, stay because we won't let you leave. Yeah, weird story. Those wacky North Koreans apparently pulled a guy off a plane who went back to go visit because uh, he'd been like some sort of intelligence operative during the Korean War. Which brings up the first of our two stats of the day. The first being that 6,000 Western tourists have visited the dictatorship of North Korea this year as it's becoming something of a vacation destination for the adventurous. As recently as 2004, the country had fewer than 700 foreign tourists. Which invites a slight digression on my part. The only person I've ever met that traveled to North Korea was a gentleman I chanced to find myself on a bus in Namibia with. An eclectic group of what I guess, for lack of a better term, I would describe as um, political figures was getting a tour of the about-to-become-independent country. The gentleman who'd been in North Korea was, as I recall, from Zambia and a member of the Communist Party. And I guess as part of his Communist Party activities, at some point he got invited to go see the, uh, the People's Republic of North Korea. And I had to note with some hilarity that this man, who on, several, on some level must have been a, a true believer of sorts, even he had to make fun of North Korea. How everybody mouthed slogans, how everybody paid tribute to the dear leader or the great leader how regimented and drab it was. And from what I can gather from uh, the headlines of today, not a whole lot's changed. So I would note that this correspondent is not going to be one of those 6,000 people trying to get in next year. All right, now statistic part two is 0000000000, eight zeros. This represents the United States military's nuclear launch code that was in every nuclear missile silo in America from 1962 to 1977. They apparently chose that number so they could rapidly respond to any Soviet attack. This caused Jay Leno to quip some weeks ago that the most embarrassing thing about this is that George W. Bush forgot it twice. I think we'll do a couple of anecdotes for today's program, both of which come from the book title, What Were They Thinking?, Really bad ideas throughout history. Under the heading of politics in America, we have these two items. First, that Reagan Brown, who was running for re-election as Texas State Agriculture Commissioner in 1982, thrust his hand into a large mound of dirt on live TV to demonstrate the danger of fire ants. Mr. Brown was bitten so fiercely, he had to be rushed to the hospital. P.S. notes the book, he was defeated. And item two, also from Texas, not surprisingly perhaps, was that in order to elicit voter sympathy and and win another term in office, Mike Martin, a Texas state representative, arranged for his cousin to shoot him in the arm in 1981. Martin variously blamed the stage attack on devil worshippers and political foes. Unfortunately for him, his cousin went to the authorities and confessed the plot. Facing multiple charges, Martin disappeared. Law enforcement officers traced him to his mother's house where he was hiding in a stereo cabinet. Explained the late Texas-born columnist and one-time Radio Parallax guest Molly Ivins, he always did want to be the speaker.
Martin later pled guilty to perjury and dropped out of the race. All right, let's jump right into the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, it was a good week last week for animal intelligence after zoologists observed crocodiles and alligators balancing twigs on their snouts to lure and chomp on birds who were seeking nest-building material. This is the first time tool use has been documented in reptiles. It was, on the other hand, a bad week for audiologists last week after rowdy Seattle Seahawks fan screamed and jumped up and down so hard during their 34-7 home win over New Orleans, that their celebrations produced a record 137.6 decibels. Also, an earthquake, which measured between magnitudes 1 and 2. And it was an ugly week last week for America's trial lawyers. After a man who sued Washington, D.C.'s subway system, claiming he'd slipped on a banana peel in an elevator was charged with fraud when video footage showed him tossing the banana peel on the ground, stepping on it, and then theatrically falling down. And finally, it was, well, we're not sure whether it's a good week or a bad week. We think it's a little bit of both. For the Swedish penal system, with the news that uh, a Swedish inmate who was suffering from a toothache broke out of prison to visit the dentist. The prisoner explained, my entire face was completely swollen. I just couldn't stand it. The escapee then turned himself in and had one day added to his sentence. And finally, we're not sure whether it's a good or bad or ugly week for statistics gathering, but Bellevue College in Washington State now offers applicants seven different options for their gender. They are feminine, masculine, androgynous, transgender, gender neutral, other, and prefer not to say. The college says the question will help it create better services and classes for gender-variant students. Now, what they're going to do for those people who answer, prefer not to say, well, we we don't know. But but we hope they get better service. Speaking of college, here's an item that we just have to snicker over a bit. We've all seen those people that are held up as authorities on a particular subject because not only do they go to Harvard or Yale or Princeton, etc., graduating with honors, or magna cum laude, or summa cum laude, etc. Well, according to a Sarah Hedgecock writing in Gawker.com, Harvard may not be all it's cracked up to be. Turns out the Ivy League has a case of great inflation. This is according to the Harvard Crimson. At a monthly faculty meeting, the school's dean of undergraduate education told the professors at Harvard The grade most frequently awarded to students at Harvard is an A. And this isn't the first time apparent grade inflation has plagued the Ivy League. Back in 2002, Harvard capped the proportion of the graduating class graduating with honors to 60%. That came after a year in which 91% of the students graduated with them. Yale took a look at things and found out that uh, 62% of the grades awarded to undergraduates from 2010 to 2012 were in the A-minus range. For its part, Princeton has instituted a policy of grade deflation to limit the awarding of high grades. 
But those tougher standards are now apparently under review. All right, let's do three uh, three items from what I guess we'd call News Roundup. And I guess the headline for this item would be, when 3D printable guns that are capable of passing undetected through airport x-ray machines are banned, only outlaws will have 3D printable guns that can pass undetected through airport x-ray machines. Yes, the House and Senate are apparently uh, struggling in an effort to renew a, a 10-year-old law. They're going to put a 10-year extension on it of, uh, yeah, 3D printable handguns that have supposedly one metal part to allow you to detect it by an X-ray machine. But uh, there's apparently a loophole involved where the part doesn't have to be necessary for the gun to fire and also can be easily removed. Yeah, apparently the House passed a version that had that loophole intact, and I guess the Senate followed suit. And uh, yeah, just to clarify things, as this law is currently written, manufacturers of 3D printed guns are only required to make their firearms detectable to security screening in some way, usually by including some form of metal, but some designers have made that metal piece non-functional and easily removable. Is this a great country or what? And how embarrassing for this nation this comes on the one-year anniversary of, uh, of, of the uh, massacre at Newtown. And how about this? For the first time since 1976, someone has launched a craft to go to the moon and drive around as a little mini rover. In this case, it's the Chinese. Now, the U.S. sent, uh, sent a dune buggy up with the, the Apollo astronauts that drove on the moon, but I don't believe we had a robot that drove itself. The Soviets put two of those craft on the moon, which uh, gave them a lot of experience, which we were able to uh, then take advantage of for some of the probes we have had on the Martian surface, and, and still do. The Chinese have launched the Chang'e 3 lunar lander. It is six-wheeled, solar-powered. It's called the Jade Rabbit. And if all goes well, it will be having difficulty maneuvering its way around lunar craters and driving too slowly sometime soon. And by the way, the implied opinion that Chinese are bad drivers represents that of the host alone and does not necessarily reflect the views of KDVS, our sponsors, or the University of California. Actor Bruce Dern, who's getting some good notices for the current movie Nebraska, tells a story about, uh, about how when he was working on the film Family Plot, he observed the late, great Alfred Hitchcock rebuffing Steven Spielberg. It's been noted that uh, throughout his later life, Alfred Hitchcock steadfastly refused to meet Steven Spielberg despite the many efforts of the younger director. I guess when Dern was working on Family Plot, which was Hitchcock's last movie, and, and a pretty good one as I recall, he was said to have been upset by the presence of a young man hovering about the set and asked for him to be removed. It was young Steven Spielberg, who, having just had a breakthrough hit with Jaws, was desperate to meet his idol. Spielberg tried, tried to sit down with Hitchcock on several more occasions, but always got the brush off. When Bruce Dern asked Hitch why that was, he replied, Isn't that the boy who made the fish movie? I could never sit down and talk to him, because I look at him and I feel like such a whore. When Dern asked what he meant, Hitchcock explained, Because I'm the voice of the Jaws ride. They paid me a million dollars. I took it and I did it. I'm such a whore. I can't sit down and talk to the boy who did the fish movie. I couldn't even touch his hand. To which we say, good for Hitchcock. 
On last week's program, we beat up on some uh, bad journalistic writing. Writing about the disastrous McVillage project that uh, Phil Angelides apparently sweet-talked the News and Review's Nick Miller about. Susan Norris wrote to the B in a rather more lucid fashion to note that just because there's bare land in the city doesn't mean it's suitable for housing. What you, referring to the B, forgot to mention was the noise and pollution factor. The area has 30 trains honking their horns. Business 80 is jammed with cars and Cal Expo holding events all the time with plans for a new soccer stadium that seats 8,000. What do you think the noise factor will be for people living in McKinley Village, not to mention all the pollution from cars and trains? I live a mile away and I hear everything. People might buy these homes, but they will not be able to enjoy their yards or walks in their neighborhoods. And both the Bee and the News and Review have sloughed over the issue of uh, schools, implying that, well, these, the kids in this new development will just go to the nearby Theodore Judah School. No, it's already full. There's no guarantee that anyone will get in there. Causing Shannon Ross to write the B and say, A second faulty assumption is that the location is close to schools. McKinley Village is not located within the Sacramento Unified School District, so its location, quote, near, unquote, Theodore Judah is irrelevant. In any case, Theodore Judah is at capacity and will not be able to absorb the sudden addition of students from hundreds of new families. We'll be talking more about that project in this program. Since the effect on the neighborhood of yours truly is going to be so catastrophic, I'm going to have to move. And regarding Dennis McEwen's special piece to the bee, extolling the virtues of the Bay Delta Conservation Plan, which we lambasted, I'd like to quote also from a couple writers to the bee. Wrote Bill Kyer from San Rafael, I've known Dennis McEwen as a state fish and game biologist, not as a water policy pundit. I would have been stunned if he'd written this shout-out to the Delta Chunnels while at the State Department of Fish and Wildlife. But now McEwen works for the promoters of the proposed Twin Tunnel Project, the State Department of Water Resources. The Delta protection problem is as it was with the Peripheral Canal 40 years ago. The State Water Resources Control Board was created in the 60s to establish, among other things, how much fresh water is needed to protect Bay Delta estuary resources. The board's been politically restrained from doing its job. Building first and finding out how badly it affects the estuary second was the problem with the peripheral canal. Now it will be the problem with the tunnels. In a similar vein, Dan Bacher sounded off by noting that the Bay Delta Conservation Plan is not, quote, the most realistic plan yet conceived, unquote, to address the co-equal goals of ecosystems restoration and water supply reliability, as Dennis McEwen claims. How will the Twin Tunnels benefit Central Valley Chinook salmon, steelhead, and other fish species when they will only spread the fish carnage from the South Delta to the Sacramento River? The massacre of millions of fish annually will continue when the South Delta pumps are operating and the new intake facilities in the Sacramento River will imperil salmon in their major migratory corridor. I ran into Mr. Bacher a few days ago and said, as far as I can see, taking water from the, uh, the tunnel intakes north as opposed to south is about as different as taking change out of your left pocket versus your right. He said, yeah, I think that about sums it up. Yeah, the bee published a diagram showing how much the, the South Bay uh, uh, outflow would decrease, the thing that Dennis McEwen was decrying as being so bad for the fisheries. And apparently if you put the tunnels up north, you can reduce the outflow by perhaps a third. 
In other words, two-thirds of what's going on now will continue under the best-case scenario. So I think the idea that's going to help the fish is just bunk. All right, we need to take a break, and I don't want to end on a downer. All right, let's close with, let's close with this most remarkable story that it's an upper no matter how you look at it. This astounding story from Nigeria about a boat that sank and went 100 feet down, and when salvage divers were exploring the wreck 72 hours later, looking to extract bodies, they found a live human. Harrison Ogjeba Okene somehow survived in a pocket of air for three days. This really is an astonishing story. Apparently the divers had TV cameras with them and they were being monitored from the surface. Somebody sees a hand show up. They assume it's a corpse. The diver reaches out to grab it and the hand grabs him. Now we haven't checked it out, but apparently the video of this has gone viral on the web. At first I thought this story couldn't possibly be true because after 72 hours at that depth, you'd have to be in a decompression chamber. But the story says they put him in one and then returned him to the surface. I don't know how you, I don't know how, Mr. McGillan, how could you do that? I'm not sure, but it sounds like divine intervention, but I will look into it. <laughs> yeah, because he believes it's divine intervention, and who's to argue? All right, I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. Let's take a break and then talk about the passing of a great man, Nelson Mandela. Nelson Mandela. 